Good day, this is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered, focused, decisive action and inspired outcome. Our spotlight is on organizational and human resource development. My guest is Pete Land. Pete Land is one of three people in the world to hold speaking and consulting credentials and a high honor from the National Speakers Association. For over 40 years now, he's conducted leadership and management development workshops on a wide variety of topics on over four continents. His client list includes organizations in the United States, Russia, Europe, Australia, Canada, and Mexico. He's also served Fortune 500 companies, multinational corporations, local, state, and federal governmental agencies, just to name a few. For over 24 years, he served in the United States Air Force and retired as colonel. He holds a political science degree from the Citadel, plus an MS in systems management from the USC. Today we talk about his wonderful book, How to Build a Winning Team and Have Fun Doing It. To reach Pete, go to his website to find out more about his consulting and speaking services, as well as how to get this great book. PeteLand.com. Fascinating information. Let's get to it. Pete Land, welcome. How Thank are you, doing you Sabrina. I could not be better. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you for being with us. I have read your wonderful book here about how to build a winning team and have fun right. doing it. Why don't you tell our audience um, a bit about your background, where you come and what you do? Okay. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Um, I'll give you a little bit more than I give most people, but they might find it interesting. My grandfather was named Charles Ashburner. He was British, and he came over the United States in the early 20s, and he invented the city manager form of government. He was the first one uh, to be the city manager, and he became the head of the International Association. But anyway... His name was Ashburner, which is my middle name. And so as a kid, I could read about Charles Ashburner, the history books, the government books, their buildings named for it. And it's kind of fun to see your name in a book. So I got interested as a young person in reading about leadership and good skills and those sorts of things. And when everybody else was reading about the coach, the players, I was reading about the coaches and so forth. So as a, as a kid in high school, I had immersed myself in the study of leadership. And as a result of having a little bit better handle on it than most people. I was a teenager of the year and student body president and won a lot of awards for that. And I went to the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina on a leadership scholarship, which was nice. Graduated in 1958 and uh, went in the Air Force as a pilot, spent 24 years in the Blue Suit Air Force, retired as a colonel, and I flew combat in Vietnam and all of that. But one of my assignments in the Air Force was Director of Management Consultation for the U.S. Air Force. I basically ran the Air Force's consulting business. We worked worldwide. And I was a commander of an Air Force base and vice commandant of the Air War College. But my career, Sabrina, was as a troubleshooter. For some reason, I just seemed to have an ability to find an organization, find out what its mission and metrics are, find out what skills it takes to do it well, what resources, and then begin to build a team focused on the mission and one of the things I've said for years, give everybody the credit for things that go right, and you take the blame for everything wrong. And people okay. don't mind that, you know. But so many people get it backwards. They take the credit and give the blame to everybody else and wonder why there's no loyalty. But in my Air Force career, I was sent around. Uh, in fact, in 24 years, we moved 20 times. 
My son went to nine schools in 12 years. Cause I was moving a lot to fix organizations. And the book that you mentioned, uh, How to Build a Winning Team, tells a story of a combat unit in Vietnam that I was sent to because they weren't doing well and we got them fixed. But anyway, retired in 1982, started my own consulting training business. And I do team building, leadership development, uh, developing coaching skills, uh, how to motivate people, those multiple skill sets that people need to be effective. And I've been doing it for 30 years on four continents. Uh, my first book is in Russian. And I uh, have actually been to 50 countries. I've done workshops on four continents, Australia, Russia, all over Europe, different places, because the skills that I teach are international and they're timeless. Uh, when do people not need to know what's going on in communication? When do people not know need to be appreciated? So the kind of stuff I teach is timeless and they work everywhere. So that's the short course. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you majored in political science, so I find that quite interesting that you're talking about team building. How did, did mm-hmm. the two were you, how did you merge and what did you learn from that studying well, that applied to what you're doing now? Good question. Um, my undergraduate science, however, my master's degree, I have a master's from the University of Southern California in called systems management, an MS degree, and it not only systems of people but systems and organizations. And because my strategy was to build teams and develop leaders, that's where I sort of developed the expertise is doing it on the job. But, I mean, I worked with uh, peewee football teams and took them to a 10-0 and 0 championship. I worked with a PTA group, a parent-teacher association group, and one of the largest in South Carolina. And because the principles of good leadership work everywhere, that's that's what it's about. What are some of the biggest leadership challenges you've seen in the last, say, 30, 35 years that you've been doing? Good that? question. Let, let me, I have to dig in on that one a little bit, but let me explain a little bit about what what it's about. In our culture, more so in America than some other countries I've been in, but the other countries are kind of catching up, but uh, the leadership of an organization tends to be graded and evaluated and honored based on short-term results, short-term quarterly profits. What does it look like at the end of 90 days, 120 days? And so the long-term result type of things like development and team building, those kind of things, don't get as much attention because there is an initial outlay for the training and the time, but the return on investment to the bottom line might not show up for a year or so. I believe it or not, Sabrina, I had a, C, or a chief financial officer of a big company ask me in a meeting. He said, Pete, if we spend X dollars on Monday in a workshop, what's the return on investment Friday on the bottom line? Which tells me they looked at short-term cycle. Now, development is more of a long-term strategy. You develop skills. You ingrain those skills. You practice those skills. You develop them further. And pretty soon, the skills are improving turnover. They're improving communications. They're reducing uh, the problems and the quality issues on the job. So the, what I get sort of short temperature about is that the long-term development strategies are what development, leadership, training, and those sort of things are focused on. And that's, I'm finding, uh, in fact, an uh, interesting thing, I was working with a Japanese country several years ago, maybe 25 or so, and they were sort of in the cycle that, in America, when they have problems, the first thing they cut is the training budget. In that country, in Japan, when they have problems, they enhance the training budget. They say, we must train more. We must be even more proficient. We cannot make any mistakes. We cannot lose any customers. We cannot have any lawsuits. 
due to lack of training and skill. So I'm beginning to see a little bit of a resurrection of that in some pretty what I would call mature organizations here where they really focus on building the next generation. I've said this sort of tongue-in-cheek, and I say it to CEOs now. I say, believe it or not, your main objective is not profit. It's survival. It's being able to be here three or four generations down the road. In fact, some of our uh, Fortune 100 companies years ago that were honored because they're doing well, many of those were not on the list five years later because they had burned up, you might say, the organization by short-term profits, and they didn't have the next generation. Um, a lot of times I will ask people in workshops, I'll say, did you get your job to management today because you excel at the previous job? And they nod their head and smile. I say, yeah. So you represent excellence in the previous job. You might not be excellent in your present job. You've only been there two weeks, but you mastered the previous job. And they nod their head, kind of grin. I said, now, you have people in the previous job that when they see you, they say, that person is good at my job. Now, what your goal is, is to develop an on-purpose development strategy where the people in the job you used to be in are better at that job than you were when you got promoted because you were the best. You leave the pertinent skills behind in the next generation. And it's not done at random. It's an on-purpose strategy where they know that you have an interest in their development, and their development means their future. And their future means don't leave the company, don't get, you know, go find a better job someplace across the street. But it stabilizes the organization. And when I tell them, you're not done to the people that work for you are better than you are, that changes the entire culture of communications, team building, training, coaching, long-term development. And believe it or not, it actually stabilizes the organization. I see that all the time. That makes sense? <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. And I mean, yeah. I read in your book, it, you're talking about each member working for the common goal, purpose, result, commitment. But that brings me to the next question. Um, you've got that uh, team culture. And yes. we're in a me society. I don't know if you've noticed oh, that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tell um, us what that team culture you're talking okay. about would look like. Well, let me go back to square one. There are two types of teams in captivity in the world. One is called a co-acting team, CO-acting, and the team is working in parallel, side-by-side, success of one leader, person not related to the efforts of others. The classic business model is the sales force. The sales force, most people in sales have to have an ego because they deal with rejection. And so the team culture in, in uh, the sales organization is to win the sales award, to win the bonus, to win the trip, to be a salesman of the quarter or salesman of the year. And you do that by doing a better job than your other salesman. Now, let's assume, Sabrina, that you and I are in sales, and you have a district and I have a district, and there's a poster in the lobby of our building for the salesman of the quarter, and you're at the top and I'm number two and whatever. Well, when I see you walking down the hall and you see me, here's the subtext of our behavior. I hope you lose today. I hope I beat you in the sales numbers. I hope I get more sales than you do. And if I see an opportunity to help you, I won't do it because I'm trying to beat you. And you have that same feeling towards me. Now, here's the bad news. If we have subordinates that work for us and they sense that you and I are in a competitive relationship, they will be in a competitive relationship. The secretaries will compete. The clerks will compete. So there's a competitive overlay in the organization. And if we go into a meeting and, 
something comes up and I can say something that maybe look make you a little more embarrassed, I'll say, well, how about this in front of the CEO? And you'll say, yeah, but how about this? And I've seen CEOs tell me that they separating the cats in staff meetings. They're constantly in a in antagonistic tone because they're competing against each other. Now, the only other kind of team in the world is called an interacting team. Interacting. It means the members of the teams work interdependently. Success of one related to efforts of others. Now, if we have an interactive culture, like a football team, you know, a quarterback cannot make a touchdown by himself. He gets killed if he tries that. <laughs> but the football team requires a blockers, receivers, tacklers. They have everybody, and they bring, of course, a team is a small group of people with complementary skills. Complement with an I means I help you, you help me. Uh where I need your skill, you need mine, so we both can win. Now, when you have a complementary culture, a collaborative, the word co-together, labor work, collaborative culture, I see you walking down the hall, and I look at you, and I say, this Sabrina, she's my friend, and I hope she has a great day today, because if she does, then all of us will, because we'll, you know, team our pool, our, our scores and all that. And you look at me, and you say, you know, this Pete, my friend, Here's a tip or a lead or a contact that I could pass to him that might help him sell more. And all of a sudden, we are working together, caring about each other, making going out of the way to help each other, giving tips and leads. But if we're in a co-acting setting and I learn a technique to sell something and I make a big sale, am I going to call you up and tell you how I did that? No. <laughs> you won't either. No. But if I have an in-depth feeling for success of the organization, and you're part of the organization, and your success I help participate in, enjoy, and enjoy, I will call you at night. I say, hey, Sabrina, I did something the other day. It worked pretty good. Here's what I did. Or, Sabrina, I'm embarrassed to say this, but here's something I don't want to learn again. Technique that didn't work. I want to share that with you so you don't step on that rake and have a problem. You will do that for me. I'll do it for you. And when we're doing it for each other, our staffs will do it with each other. The secretaries will help each other in what we call proactive way. Reactive means you respond to something. Proactive means you create something. You go out and I'll give you a call and say, this is something I ran across will help you. This will hurt you. Don't do it. And now you are sensitive what my needs are. There's a book out years ago called The Power of Alignment, and it said that good companies are aligned, for example, receiving, manufacturing, packing, shipping. Those are aligned, and they say good companies are aligned on the customer. In other words, mm-hmm. Department A, their output goes to Department B. Now, B can't do a good job if A's output is flawed or late or quality issues. So A is ensured that Department B gets everything they need when they need it on time, the proper amount. B takes their products and skills and tools, adds value with some, trans, you know, development. And they give it to C. And C gives it to D. Now, here's the glory of it. Good companies are aligned on their customer. Great companies are aligned on their customer's customer. They go beyond the customer, try to ensure that that customer has a home run every day on their job vis-a-vis their customer. Now, let me ask you a question. If you have a vendor or a supplier who has a focused energy on you doing a good job with your customer, are you going to be loyal? Are you going to quibble about price? You know, there's a whole different chemistry in the organization when people are proactively helping each other. That's and that's what I strive to create in my organizational development issues. Mm-hmm. 
When you're talking about team values and element, yes. you're talking about that winning team working together. But in any team, we have communication. Sometimes we have breakdowns yes. or whatnot. And yes. how can we proactively have a great dialogue with the people mm-hmm. that we're working with to, so to build them up so they'll continue to help the whole team? All right. Let me talk communication because that's the founding skill set. If you can't communicate, you can't do anything else. But here's the founding skill set. There are two types of communication systems. The first one is called a pull system, P-O-L-L, which means information flows upon demand. I need something to make a decision. I go to one of my staff. I say, what's the status of the Jones project? I'm going to pull that information. They research it, type it up, get it edited, proof it, give it to me. I have the information I need because I pulled it from the source. Now, sometimes you can look up a regulation. You can pull guidance from there. But... Let's assume that it's a information I need for decision-making. When you prepare it, research it, type it, edit it, proof it, you get the hassle, you get the jerk around, you get the little bit of harassment for doing it, and I get the benefit. Now, my boss might call me for information that I've gotten. I have to put it together for that person, and I get the hassle, and they get the benefit. Now, we have to have that. Every management report in the world is based on a pull system. They say. Sabrina, send me this information every month in this format by the end of the month. That's a pull system. We have them everywhere, and you need them. The only other kind of information in the world is called a push system, P-O-S-H, which means information flows without demand. You gave me something, gave me an email, dropped me a note, called me on the phone, gave me some information. The purpose of your doing that is to help me win. Now, I didn't ask for it. I didn't know that you would know it. But when you saw and perceived that bit of information, might not be of value, but it's value to me, and you send it to me, email, call, note, whatever, that is pushing information. Now, when I get that email, let's say, for example, that you're flying on a jetliner from A to B like you do, and you're looking at the magazine in the pocket, and you know I'm in management development, leadership building, team building. And you see an article on page 22 in small print at the bottom of the page of the words management development. You scan it. All of a sudden, the word management development caught your attention. The reason it caught your attention because you know I'm in the business and you value my success. You say, wait a minute. My friend Pete Land in leadership development, management development, he might like to read this article. You'll send it to me. I didn't know you saw it. I would have never known if you didn't. But I get this article a week later from you saying, Pete, I saw this article. It might be of interest. I gain from that. How am I going to feel about Sabrina Marie Wilson? I'm going to have a very nice, warm feeling about you, who you are, what you stand for, the value I have for your friendship. Now, am I going to be sensitive to something in your world? You know, mm-hmm. the bad news is, Sabrina, we've got to know what's important. Oh, I get mm-hmm. stuff that's not important. We call that junk mail, and I get plenty of that. But mm-hmm. I will know enough about your world, what you're doing, what your needs are. And you and I have had several lunches, and we've talked like that. But... I have to be sensitive to what other people need that I might come across, might hear in a staff meeting, right, read in a journal, a report or something, that I could say, oh, no, this might be a value to Bill or to Sabrina or to Tom. And when I'm doing that, they are sensitive to me, and that changes the whole communication pattern. It's a push system. Now, we got to have pull, but push is optional. And I say this in my books, that push information is the foundation for teamwork. We are a team because we care about each other's success, and we do that by feeding information and tips and leads and suggestions and things that we don't need to do as well. 
Now, that's the communication patterns, push-pull. The other part of it, and this is absolutely key, there are two parts to every communication. The first part is called the what, W-H-A-T, and that is the rule or policy. We have what's everywhere. Example, you walk into a store someplace and the sign says no smoking. Of course, we don't even do that anymore because it's not even considered. But the sign, no smoking, is the what? No smoking is the rule or policy. Mm-hmm. Attached to every policy, whatever the rule or policy is, there is a supporting rationale, logic, discussion that supports that, that makes that policy make sense. Now, we could put up there, no smoking, and the link that holds the what and the why together is word because, because it's a fire hazard bad for your health or whatever. And we don't need to know that because it's kind of obvious we know about the, the issues of, of smoking. But here's the problem, Sabrina. When senior management makes a decision, they do it in an atmosphere of logic, rational, reason, discussion, analysis, and they arrive at the decision, which is the what. And it makes sense because they got 30 years experience and all their staff together. And that makes sense in terms of business submission and their goals. Now, here's the problem. We leave the meeting. We know what the what and the why is. It makes sense to us. But everybody brings their ego, and we look at our people who are subordinates, and they don't need to know what I know. I mean, I'm just vice president or whatever. So I'll give them the what. we got to know that. But they don't need to know little of the background. So I will shave off of my communication to my people a little of the what, of, of why. They get the what and some of the why. Well, they know what to do, but the understanding of what makes it happen is degraded. So they push the what to the next level, and they shave off a little bit of the why for them. And before you know it, it works about four or five levels down. And the only thing that comes out for the staff is policy. This is what we do or don't do. They have no clue. They might, but it's not always their level of understanding experience at 25-year-old is different than the 55-, 60-year-old executive that made that call. So i said this many times, that if you're in any leadership position, it is your obligation to provide a bridge of confidence between senior executives who make the policies and the people at the bottom who have an opportunity to execute those policies. But if you don't do it in a climate that makes sense to them, they do it reluctantly, They don't. it doesn't make sense. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I was told that Sam Walton, you know, the, one of the richest men in the world, Walton, uh, Walmart, he understood this because policies were made at the highest level and he had thousands and thousands of employees. And I heard this from a good source that they'd make a decision, the what and the why, the because held it together, this is the policy and this is why, because. He'd get in his jet and I've been in his hangar in Bentonville, Arkansas. I have an airplane and I've been in his hangar one time for something. I've forgotten what it was about. But anyway. He would fly to Dallas with, in his plane, get out and tell one of his pilots, he said, go ahead and fly to Houston, I'll see you there tomorrow. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm going to jump in one of my trucks here in the distribution center, and I'm going to ride to Houston with one of my drivers. And they said, why are you doing that, Mr. Sam? He said, i got to have some fun. <laughs> he would pick out a truck at random, climb up in the front seat, and during the trip over, he would be asking the driver in a casual way what the policies were, and why? If they could say, this is what we do and why, well, that's a point for the king, <laughs> point for the victors. Mm-hmm. Now, they might not have agreed or liked it, but they understood the policy based upon the broader objectives of the goal. Now, if somebody had shaved off the what and the why and he asked somebody in the truck, 
And he said, I don't know. I guess it's okay. He wouldn't tell him it's stupid, but he could tell very quickly that the guy had no clue why that policy is in place and what the value is of it. Because nobody shared the what and the why. That's called communication. Communication is defined as creating understanding in the mind of the listener or the reader. They didn't understand. Now, here's the problem. If you have a rule that they don't understand, believe it or not, they feel offended that they don't understand, they didn't need to know, I just got to do it, they'll have a bad feeling about the senior executives. I've even had people tell me, I work with, you know, different levels and say, you know, we have all these policies, but they don't make any sense at all. What they're telling me, nobody shared any of the logic supporting rationale behind them. So if you're going to provide a bridge of confidence, you need to ensure, and you don't have to repeat the whole staff meeting for everybody, but you have to put enough of why to where they understand, and then they will say, we have a very fast crowd of very bright guys running this company, and I want to be a part of it. And they'll psychologically bond to the company with the leadership and the confidence they have in the leadership because they understand. That's communications. That makes sense? <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. You know, <laughs> it's it's really, it truly really does. It's not, I mean, when you break it down and you yeah. give them the, you know, reasons why this is yeah. needed. I mean, it makes everything so much easier. Yeah. Most people Absolutely. just say, well, this is the policy. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, why? <laughs> well, in, you know? what happens, the consequences for not doing it are negative, either discipline or writing up or firm termination. If you show them the positive consequences for doing it and they do it, they feel linked up to I'm making a contribution. What I do is a value. This thing that I did, the what, is making a bigger contribution. And they do it with a whole different attitude. They'll do it, and as I say, people who are not motivated come to work early, come to work late, reluctantly, and go home early enthusiastically. No, but really? <laughs> people that are connected, that are there because they understand what is going, they come to work early, enthusiastically, and go home late, reluctantly. They're not worried. The connected employees that are engaged, they don't worry about a job description. That is a platform they stand on to reach for the mission with their skills. And they're constantly upgrading those skills. But if you keep it, do this because I said so, or I'll fire you, they know exactly where the last period in the job description is. They'll do the absolute minimum. They know where on the brakes are. Getting out of the parking lot at quitting time is an unsafe place to be because they're not going home. They are leaving work because they're not engaged and connected to the organization. And the glue that holds it together is basic communication skills. There's something that I read in this book that I find um, not only true, but the way you put it about the creativity coming from conflict in the oh, yes. whole team yes. feedback. Uh-huh. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Stoke Caveman defined if they strike two stones together, they make a fire. You know, but <laughs> when when conflict, if you put it in a positive negative basket, it's just negative. But that's only because it's handled poorly. And the word conflict can mean a strong, healthy disagreement based on different values and perceptions. And, you know, we can have conflict and go to lunch together. So mm-hmm. the negative conflict where you're out to defeat, to win, to make somebody else lose, that conflict is destructive. You always try to outdo somebody. I'll tell you a quick anecdote about the, the creativity part. Uh, there's a company in North Carolina that uh, has sales presentation teams. And there's like five or six different people, and they're all bring different disciplines to it. And one of the cultural issues of the team is the team meets before meeting with this big client for a million dollars of job, and they tell each other what the issues are, share their tips, 
If they've heard anything that would help somebody else, they share it with them then. And it's all really sort of a team huddle. And one of the cultural issues are, when you go into the meeting, your job is to make the team look good, not yourself. And the way they do it, say, I might go first, and I'll do my thing, and I'll say, now I want to introduce my colleague, Serena Marie Wilson. She's got these credentials, world of travel, blah, blah, blah. And my introduction of you is going to make you look good in front of that client. When you finish your pitch, you introduce Joe. Joe has a degree from Harvard, whatever. And pretty soon, we represent a strong block of people representing the company, and we work together. But this happened. They hired somebody who was a co-acting person, big ego, wanted to get all the glory. And they told him about, you know, we work together. We don't grandstand and try to, you know, steal the stage. And he said, oh, sure, oh, sure. Went to his first big presentation. This was in Raleigh, North Carolina, several years ago. And he had held back some information and didn't share it in the team meeting. And when they got to a critical point, he raised his hand and says, yes, but how about this and this and this? And for a brief moment, he was kind of proud of himself for dropping all those surprises on everybody. Guess what happened? What? They fired him at lunchtime. Whoa, I don't blame him. On the spot. Mm-hmm. We do not have a culture where we try to one-ups each other. We don't compete at the conference table. We can cooperate. You don't understand the culture. Clean out your desk. You're fired. And, of course, that is the culture. And, you know, nobody's dumb enough to do it. But the culture itself, you wouldn't think of doing it anyhow because – my job is to make Sabrina look as good as you can possibly look, and your job is to make me look good in front of the customer. Did you know that there are two questions that must be answered in the affirmative, positively, before anything else happens in the sales process? Number one, do I have confidence in or do I trust this person across the table? If that flags yes, I have confidence and I trust Sabrina. The next question is, do I have confidence in the organization she represents? If that flags yes, I have confidence and trust in her and the organization, then you get into price, delivery, schedules, colors, and all that. But if either one of those flags, no, I'm not too sure. Uh, you know, nothing else happens in the sales force. Now, let's talk about conflict. That meeting that we talked about in Raleigh, they had discussions in the preliminary meeting. They discussed things. They kind of got into some arguments. Why about this? And they tried. And what they left with was a an agreement of what the position is. Everybody got listened to, and they could argue and then go to lunch, but it was not unpleasant. But when somebody challenges you in a positive way, you go deeper into your psyche. You say, well, wait a minute. How about this? And pretty soon, you begin to think of things you didn't think of before because there was no need to think of them. So the creativity, the stimulus of creativity, is often surfaced by saying, all right, what's the probability of that happening? One to ten. What's a serious if it does happen? One to ten. If you get two tens, you got a, something you got to work with. But the process of challenging thinking, challenging position, and here's the beauty part of it, Sabrina. You expect to be challenged, and you expect to challenge others, and it's part of the culture. And when a meeting's over, you shake hands or hug each other or whatever and go to lunch. And you know that the benefit that flowed from actually having a discussion about things Say, well, Sabrina, help me understand that. I don't quite appreciate it. Well, when I challenge, it's not conflict where I'm out to beat you. I'm trying to examine, and all of a sudden, you explain it to me. You have an insight. Everybody sees it better. We leave better prepared. So that's part of the book is trying to create a culture where conflict is not forbidden, but it's supervised and done in a professional way, and invariably the benefits flow to everybody. 
Okay. I wanted you to go into briefly um, the discipline area and positive ways to discipline because many people think, well, you have a conflict and then there's discipline. Yeah. And you, I'm sure you've sure. heard many times people get yeah. so discouraged oh, in that yeah. discipline yeah. because okay. many times they're ripped up in front of the whole staff. Um, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I tell people, and it's in my books, never discipline people in private. You know, And frankly, I don't use the word discipline. But I call it corrective feedback. That's better than but Here's the, the background. I have a few minutes left. There are four reasons why people don't perform effectively. These are the big four. You've got to solve all four of these problems or they don't perform. The first one is called lack of skill or lack of knowledge. They don't know how to do it, haven't been trained or don't understand. Education is understanding knowledge. Training is skill building. But they've got to have the knowledge and the skill. Once you have closed that switch, they know how to do the task. The next step, you've got to motivate them to do it. Now, four kinds of motivation, four categories. Positive tangible is money, pay, benefits, you can count the dollars. Positive intangible is praise, pats on the back, thanks, emails, hugs, or whatever. Those things that make us feel good and appreciated. Positive tangible, positive intangible. Negative tangible is a letter reprimand, a bad performance review, termination notice, it's in your record. It's negative and it's tangible. A negative intangible is yelling at people, treating them like trash, criticizing in front of others, calling them dumb and stupid. Those feelings we get from being treated that way are called negative intangible. Now, here's the problem. Everybody has in their head a set of mental balance scales. On one side of the balance scales, we value our contribution to organizations every day with our skills and ability. And on the other side, we value the consequences we get for that contribution. We value our money. We value our pay bonuses, our training. We value a thank you note from the boss. Sometimes when we don't do what we should do, we get some negative stuff. But we assess that consequence system, and it's in our values, not bosses. As long as what I'm giving is in a state of balance or equilibrium of what I'm getting and my consequences, if it's in balance, I'll be there Monday and do it again. Now, the idea of motivation, their performance, there are four major categories of, of, I say people don't do jobs, they do tasks. People work at the task level. Every task has four standards. There's a quality standard, no defects, typos. There's a quantitative standard, I need three copies. There's a cost-effective standard, don't waste resources and take all day to do a one-hour job. And there's a timeliness standard, I need it by 4 o'clock. Every task has those four dimensions of four standards. Now, when people are performing, using their skills and motivation, of course you have to give them the resources, the computers and all that, but basically, when they're doing a good job, it is your job to pick up on the particular dimension of what they did, the parts they did well, and say, Sabrina, I like the way you asked the questions at this meeting. <laughs> it really focused our training. Thanks a lot. Now, I'm giving you positive feedback. Now, if the person does not maintain or meet a standard and they fall below it, you must do corrective feedback. Corrective feedback would be something like this. Sabrina, you know that report is due to me on the 12th. That's the standard. Towards the date of the 14th, that's a deviation. And then I say, I'm very surprised. It's not like you. I've never seen you be late. And I would say, what happened, which is a neutral question. You will tell me we had a computer go down or I had to go out of town or I got sick or whatever. You'll explain it. And then I say, well, what did you learn? You'll tell me. And then I'll say, well, Sabrina, what do you recommend we do to keep this from happening again? Invariably, when I'm your boss and you're in a little pressure and I say, what do you recommend? Invariably, they'll look at me and say, Gee, I don't know, boss. You, you're my boss. You've been here. What do you think? And invariably, they'll ask you to tell them. 
and in my workshops, they practice that. And I tell them, if you answer the question and tell them what to do, you flunk the test because you want them to own their own solution. And you learn to deal with that temptation and say, well, you know, Sabrina, I'm not that close to what I used to be, but you're a lot close to it than I am. Rather get your thoughts, and then you shut your mouth. And they'll tell you what to do. And then you say, sounds pretty good. What can I do to help? And you've done corrective feedback. Now, if the performance improves, you've solved the problem. They didn't have resources, didn't have skills or whatever. Now, if it repeats, and you can determine through this process that it was not a machine breakdown or not a lack of skill or whatever, it was simply motivation and willingness, they chose to do that wrong or chose not to do it, you bring a consequence in, which is negative, and it usually serious, your first thing, you write them up, which is a negative, tangible consequence, and then you develop a strategy to get well. And the second time they do it wrong, then you go through documentation, termination. But if you do these other skills well, you don't get to discipline. You don't get to, to write people up because you're doing the other things so well, you don't have any deviations. But you only discipline people when the defect is based on their motivation. For example, you say, do this report, and they have a computer go down, you don't discipline because they didn't get it done. You get the computer fixed. But mm-hmm. if they say, well, I meant to and I was busy and all that nonsense. They had all the resources and everything. I just forgot. And that's the second time they've done it and you've already had one session with them. Then you might say, okay, you have a written reprimand and then you ratchet up the consequences. But that's what motivation and consequences come together in uh, that, that context. Mm-hmm. Now, the book... How to Build a Winning Team is on your website, PeteLand.com. What Correct. other books? I believe this is your second book, right? I've written three. That is my second. My first book was called Managing to Get the Job Done. It's also in Russian. It's hardcover, and it's basically sold out. It, I've had it for 30 years, and it's still a pretty good book, and I might get it out again. But the second was called How to Build a Winning Team and Have Fun Doing It, and that's my experience in team building. And the third book is called How to Delegate Effectively Without Losing Control. I've taught about 10,000 people on four continents how to delegate because it's a key leadership skill. It's a survival skill for executives to be able to do it properly, correctly, set controls and check for resources and all that. But I go in sometime and the CEO's got 60 hours a week and the desk full and he's not seeing his family. And I say, do you delegate? So, well, I doesn't work here. Every time I do, I get in trouble. Well, the reason he didn't know how to do it. When you do it right, there's virtually no way to, to, to make a mistake if you do it like, you know, my book and stuff I teach because you, you check on several things, ensure they're in place, and before you know it, you've delegated things. And if you're really doing it well, they're doing it better than you did. So, but that's it. It's been a great segment. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure, my friend.